When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I thought you were going to be in a full tuxedo. Yeah, well, um, yes, I've got a, a wife, you know, and they say, don't put it on now. It'll all get scrunched up. So. Right. I've been watching Antiques Road Trip episode two. I'm absolutely outraged by the change of format without any explanation whatsoever. They've given them £1,500 instead of £200 and then build your pot. And now it's like, you know, win an auction, lose an auction. It's fucking nonsense. I can't be doing with it. It's, um, they had a perfectly good, why why do things have to change? Oh, look at Finney. Not had his hair done yet, I don't think. Why has he? Don't think so, no. Looking quite fluffy, can't hear us. He's not told us it's to a bit off like Pat. Well, look at his jumper, isn't it beautiful? He's got a nice fisherman's jumper on. He looks like he might be going off in Shetland to go and catch some herring. You know, sexy fisherman. Yeah. You're right, Fiddy. <laughs> you look like in an ITV drama, the local vicar. Do you think? Oh, yeah, in Grantchester. Yeah, like yeah, he like had, yes, he had wavy hair, didn't or he? Or like broad you church. Know? They always have like a young, sexy vicar nowadays. It's never like an old yeah. bloke. It's always a young, trendy vicar, and that's what Finney looks like. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a bit. Though. He's not Father Brown, is he? Oh shit, that's reminded me. I've still got four or five episodes of that series to finish. Oh yeah, right, shall we? Shall we start? <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of Zero Ducks Given. And look at this. The team are back together. They're all back in Blighty. It is myself, Toby Tarrant. It is Daniel Norcross and it is Stephen Finn as well. Uh, Let's start with Finney. Finney, you made it back in one piece. When did you get back from India? 24 hours ago. And it was, I mean, my back's knackered. I've got a prolapsed or slipped disc in my back. So... It was uncomfortable and took copious amounts of prescription drugs to try and get me through the flight and and yeah, but got back in one piece and and happy to be home, to be honest. It was a long, long couple of months, a good fun couple of months, but long couple of months in India. You know, if you do have a, t- a really bad back problem, your employer has to sort of put you in business or first class. So um, yeah, well, we'll see that to believe it. So you didn't, you... Um... Well, I paid for myself, yeah, if, if that's how you want to put it, yeah. which I'm not complaining about. That's fine. But it was necessary because, yeah, it was very, very uncomfortable. 
Well, as a taxpayer who, you know, funds the BBC, I'm I for one am glad that they didn't put you in business class because that's not where my taxes should be going, really. So Can I, I point I, out can, can I point out by the way that Fiddy and I are are both licensed fee payers as well? So that there is this I, I do like this particular charge that comes to people who work at the BBC. Oh, I've paid my taxes for you to swat around. I remember when I was in the Taj Mahal. Oh, I've paid for you to go to the Taj Mahal. Well, only as much as I've paid for me to go to the Taj Mahal, especially since it came out of my money anyway because the BBC didn't pay for me to go to the Taj Mahal. We, we're all licensed fee payers. Do you know, I had a troll once who was so infuriated by the fact that I worked for the BBC. He could not stand me. That he uh, he complained about license fee, and so I asked for his uh, asked him to follow me, and I then uh, said, uh, "Look, if you if you give me your address, I'll reimburse you the amount that'll come out of your license fee, even if the BBC keep employing me at the current rate for the next twenty five years." And he was very excited and sent me his address, and I calculated what each of you bastards actually give me per year, and um, I sent him a check for nine pence to cover the next 25 years of my employment, thanks to him. Never cashed a cheque, strangely enough. Well, I mean, that's 9p that he worked hard for. Why should he be funding you to gallivant around drinking wine and smoke cigarettes? It's it's actually 8.3p that he's yet to pay. If he actually just stopped paying the licence fee, he'd be quids in. He'd get 8.3p <laughs> from me that he'd never spent. <laughs> um, and, uh, Philly, I mean, you sort of touched on it there. But uh, we'll get into it. We'll do a proper World Cup recap over the next 20 minutes or so. Before we get into the cricket side of things, genuinely, how how was it as an experience? Um, obviously, you're out there for a very, very, very long time. Now that you're back home comfortably in England, do you look back fondly? Um, was it a bloody slog? Was it far too long? Was it actually all right? What did you make of it overall from your personal experience? No, I loved it. I had a great time. I the travel was interesting got to see lots of different places until i did my back in we did an internal flight about every 3 days to try and cover as much of the tournament as possible so yeah it was it was interesting and and the time moved quickly in between games because you were always doing something the cricket could have clearly could have been more interesting i think and there could have been more jeopardy but it was fun to watch as many games as i did and the only blip to my trip was the week that I ended up just lying on a wooden plank in my bed hoping that my back got a bit better either side of that I had a really great time this has become a bit of a bit of a running theme with your tours with TMS hasn't it when you went to Australia didn't you have to spend 10 days in a hotel quarantining for COVID as well yeah yeah I've done three trips with TMS now and twice have been locked in my room for a length of time yeah yeah, hopefully, hopefully it doesn't happen on the next one. If there's a next one, it was actually though. It was. I mean, just to just to uh, yeah, amplify what Finney's saying there about how it was fun, but it was also arduous. It genuinely was both of those things. It was uh, we were in a different team, but had very similar kind of schedules. Really, like the, the first week, it was arrive, game, fly, game, game, fly, game. You know, so. Initially, you didn't see a great deal of the country, did a lot of charging about. And it was actually pretty arduous. You know, a lot of cricket tours, especially an Ashes tour, I mean, notwithstanding the COVID one, which was a nightmare, but they are great. You stay in the same place for eight, nine, ten days. You get a flavour of the city. Um, you get really into your environment. Whereas for this tour, you were flying around so much that 
it was a bit of a mind fuck, really. You know, one minute it's, oh, this is what Delhi is. The next minute, oh, this is Chennai. And then you're up in the mountains in Dharamshala, you know. So it was magnificent as an experience. But it was it was a hard old slog, actually. Seven weeks was tough. And that is the nature of the competition. I mean, I, I know Finney's talked about the actual length of the games. But, I mean, Finney, do you, do you think that the 10-team round robin doesn't work? I'm I'm a bit torn on it, you see, because in part, I think that way you get the best four teams. And I don't quite know how you get to knockouts quicker without having more irrelevant games. But have you got any kind of way it could be better? Yeah, but is the the beauty of a World Cup is that you can be the best team, but you can play badly on a day and you're knocked out. I think that's the beauty of a World Cup, not trying to sift out the top four teams that otherwise you'd just pick the top four in the rankings and say, we'll have semi-finals and a final and you lot fight it out. I think it makes for a far more interesting spectacle to watch games like Afghanistan beating England and Pakistan or the Netherlands beating South Africa and you're punished for losing games such as that. I I don't think it should be a such a long round robin situation where the best four teams in the world do end up playing in the semis and the final because there's no point in the first half of the tournament if that's the case. The only my problem opinion, we've got there though that, is that's it, my opinion. Like I, I have a lot of sympathy with that opinion because you know we did do a lot of games that didn't have a great deal on them. We were fapping about trying to big up the Champions Trophy for example as if that was going to be a fillip to get people to, to try harder. But I just I can't quite see in a tournament that is about TV it's about the ICC 48 matches they get out of this. I don't quite see them ever throwing away the 48 matches. And I don't see them also getting the same revenue if a lot of those 48 matches were matches between, let's say, you know, you expand it to 16 teams and it'd be a V Scotland. So I don't know whether there's, this doesn't really matter what we think, that the financials of the tournament make it essential to have that many games and it makes it essential to have the big teams like India, England and Australia who and Pakistan for that matter who generate so much revenue playing as many games as they can possibly squeeze out of them. I mean, I, I, from a fan's point of view, I genuinely couldn't care less who was playing by the time it gets to the World Cup if there's something riding on the game. In the same in the, way in a football World Cup, I love in a football World Cup that suddenly I find myself at, you know, depending where the, the World Cup is, two o'clock in the morning watching Japan Senegal because one of those teams could get out of the group. So if they made it a format where there was more jeopardy in games and suddenly one of Namibia or Netherlands were playing or Namibia and Scotland were playing a game where actually it was worth something, as a cricket fan, I'd bloody be well up for it. I'd find that more interesting than watching a dead rubber between South Africa and Australia, for example, so, if there's something riding on it. So you, if you had four groups of four and each group then plays six matches, you get to... 24 matches don't you I suppose and then you get two go through but then then you're down to quarterfinals well, semis and the final you haven't quite got enough games no but what what you do is play each other twice in the group I think okay. and, you, and then you play two games on the same day so you in fact you'd be having more cricket and you'd be playing two games on the same day so you're not having 48 different days of cricket as we saw in this tournament you're having less days of cricket, I think playing each other twice. I don't know. I It clearly is geared towards advertising revenue and TV revenue. That's why we have to have that many games. 
but I just think there are better ways to play the tournament that mean that it's more interesting to watch because a lot of the time we were just watching cricket. It, we were, There wasn't much riding on it. Like we were just watching cricket for the sake of watching cricket, which is fine. But I do think that World Cups should have jeopardy around them. And I think that I think that there should be more, there should be an onus on the people who organise it to provide more compelling and interesting games. I agree with two things there, Finney, because one thing I completely agree what Finney said a couple of times here about you can be the number one ranked team in the, OD, in the ODIs. That's where you can say you're the best and whatever. But a World Cup is actually just about who wins the tournament. It's actually the beauty of the tournament is that form sort of goes out the window. It's just about who has a good few weeks and who's lucky at the right times and who plays well at the right times. And I think that's the, the most important thing about a World Cup is there is jeopardy riding on games. And also, there's got to be two games on days. They've got to do a game that starts early in the morning and a day-night game. And there's a bit of overlap in the middle. But ultimately, if I'm at home watching and you've got it on two channels, say it is Namibia-Scotland in the, the morning game and South Africa-Australia in the evening game, if Namibia-Scotland comes down to the team needing 25 or three overs, you're going to watch the end of that game and then go back to South Africa-Australia. I don't think any cricket fan sits there and go, well, this is the really boring middle-over stage of Australia-South Africa, but they're better cricketers, so I'll watch this. At the end of the day, all we care about is a bit of drama and excitement. And so if it was an exciting game in the other less glamorous tie, you'd flick over to that as well. So I think there's got to be two games in a day. Because also there were some games where, a lot of games, where the result was so clear so early that it was the only game on that day. And if you'd gone to work and came home and turned it on, you're like, oh, great. It's a pointless, there's going to be a pointless hour of cricket now where a team comfortably chases this. And that's your cricket viewing for the day. So that's one thing that I think has to change. I have a lot of sympathy with that because when you're commentating those games, you're aware of it. You're you're aware of the of what you have to do to keep your listenership. Essentially, becomes more and more away from the sport. Actually, because <laughs> you, you can't afford to keep on hammering on the point about what what the game is because the the game, I'm afraid, has drifted into complete irrelevance. And that's when, as a as a cricket commentator, you have, I suppose, the opportunity and the necessity to drift into totally different areas. But it, as a sporting spectacle, it is moribund, isn't it, I suppose? So if it is if it is going to change, I guess already we've got this sort of suggestion there are going to be more teams playing, which I think is an excellent thing, incidentally. I mean, the fact that Ireland wasn't there, the West Indies weren't there, Scotland weren't there, Namibia weren't there. There's four teams who would actually made the tournament better and who knows where Nepal might be by then as well for that matter or the UAE or USA or USA indeed so I can see like how expansion is good but then there's also the fallback issue and I'm really torn I just genuinely don't know what I think about this because I do love that in 50 over cricket you can have so much narrative I found that the final had a lot of narrative actually despite Australia cruising to victory if you were able to sit down and watch the whole game, they were they're interesting games, 50 overs often. And I don't want to jeopardize that, but at the same time, it does, I don't know, it feels about 20 overs too long as a, as a day. It, it feels about an hour and three quarters too long. And I don't know what I mean by that, except that that's what it feels like. <laughs> and maybe 40 overs is right. I don't know. Well, I've wrote, 
an article about that, didn't it, a couple of weeks ago? I can't remember, actually, if we discussed it on this or yeah, not. Yeah, you but... said it on here as well, that you think it needs yeah. to be a 40-over tournament. Yeah, I think, yeah. but 40 overs does give enough time for things to fluctuate. Like, 40 overs is a long time to be out there bowling or batting. It's it's still a long time for you to be able to drag yourself back into a game, have a good 10-over period, take three wickets and, and change the complexion of the game. I, I don't think that... The, the the arguments that I had a little bit back to me was that, that oh well let's just turn it into a forty over slog fest. Forty over cricket isn't just a slog fest. You can't just slog for forty overs because you'll be all out. There there are far more technical things that you need to to bat properly in forty over cricket. And I mean if I hadn't mentioned this already as well, I had dinner with Mick Jagger last week what? in Kolkata. What? <laughs> yeah. How have you not mentioned that? He's my hero. I've got the logo yeah. tattooed on my ass. What? Yeah. I um I had dinner sat next to Mick Jagger for two and a half hours, and he told me that he had read my article on BBC Sport. So, what? um, yeah. There you go. I'll just throw yeah. that one in the mix. What, what was it? I don't care about anything else now. What? What was? What was Mick like? Very friendly, nice. Here, look. I'll show you a photo. That is the coolest thing I've ever... Look, look you're so yeah. much taller than him. But he's, oh. everyone knows, everyone knows Jagger's a renowned star fucker. Uh, massive, massive cricket fan. He loves it. Um, yeah, Did hold on. Did you chat to him about his new album? Have you even listened to Hackney Diamonds, Finney? No, I haven't. Unbelievable. Um, I he's more, read your article, him, but you haven't listened to his new album. I was asking him about my... Um, I was asking him about touring and how he enjoyed touring. And they're doing an American and they a European tour next their year. Their North America tour, yeah. Yeah. Oh, they haven't Did announced you... a European tour yet. Oh my god, we've just got our first ever exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's happening. <laughs> they haven't announced that yet. Here we go. Uh oh. We've got this, this, <laughs> here we go. Did Rolling Stones fans, we get we we are the first people to announce publicly that they're, they're doing a European tour. This is huge, and it's come from Zero Ducks Pod. This is massive for this podcast. The biggest yeah. exclusive we had before this was that Delray Rawlins was going to go play cricket in South America. I well, told you, a... Fin- I told you, Finney would come good eventually. I told you it was an act <laughs> of faith. Well, it was a, it was a strange, like how it all came about. It was funny because Matt Clifford, who's the keyboard player in the Rolling Stones, yeah. Um, he listens to TMS and him and Aggers had been in touch oh, I thought with you were each other. Say zero ducks given there, but that seemed unlikely. Uh, no, no. <laughs> um, and he he'd got in touch with Aggers and he ended up coming to up to the box in Kolkata on one of the days that we were there. So I stood at the back of the box chatting, and then Aggers came off air, was chatting to him, and he was like, "Oh, we should go for a beer later in the week." And and I knew Mick Jagger was around with his family, but I obviously didn't anticipate that he was going to come to dinner so we went to a hotel in the middle of Kolkata to meet Matt for a beer and a bite to eat and then yeah we were sat in the bar and then Mick Jagger came through the door about 10 minutes after Matt with his girlfriend and she's a about your age chap. isn't she uh 36 yeah okay yeah, um, yeah. very friendly very nice very nice people and then we ended up doing the most rock and roll thing I've ever done was eating a tie at half past 10 at night and, and sat next to Mick Jagger and just chatted to him about all sorts of stuff. Yeah, it was a it was a completely bizarre and surreal evening. That is the coolest thing I've ever heard. I've, that, I just can't <laughs> ex- explain how jealous I am. Did, I, think would, it happened, was... I think it happened during the first semi-final, didn't it? 
It was, I... yes, because they'd come yes. anticipating that they'd watch England versus Pakistan in the last group game, stay on to watch England in the semi-final, and then if they did well, watch them in the final in Ahmedabad, then go home. But instead, they watched a dead rubber between England and Pakistan. As soon as the toss went up, it was a dead game. Um, and then and then stayed on to watch the semi-final between Australia and South Africa, which actually ended up being the most exciting game of cricket that I watched in the entire seven or eight weeks that I was in India. Well, as if, you know, Mott and Butler and the ECB don't have enough on their conscience. I hope the fact that they provided a dead rubber for the greatest front man of all time is also now buried into their conscience as well. They have to live with that for the rest of their lives, okay? Oh, that's so great. I'm going to ask you a million more questions about that over the next few weeks. Now, Finney, I'm going to ask you a one-word answer here. I won't ask Daniel Norcross to do a one-word answer because we'll be here till about midnight. But, uh, Finney, has this World Cup been good or bad for 50 over cricket? Um, I don't know. I've, I've been vocal. I'm not going to give you a one-word answer, but I th- <laughs> I I've been... Well, I've been quite vocal on the fact that I think that this format should be changed to 40 overs for a whole plethora of reasons. But I still I still love 50 over cricket and I love long format white ball cricket. I just think it needs a degree of reform. So by saying bad, I don't think it's been bad to be able to sit around and watch cricket for seven or eight weeks. I think it's great that we can do that. But I just think there are things that we can do to help ourselves as a game on a whole. And I think that one of those things involves changing it from 50 to 40. So I would say it's been bad for 50 over cricket because I think that it's going to end up hopefully getting scrapped. I, I think that you did inevitably expect me to say that there are a lot of nuances in it. And this tournament struggled massively because its first two weeks were chaotic and shambolic. The ticketing was poor. The attendances were very varied to to bad. Uh, the buzz was not great. The games were pretty dreadful. But by the end of it, you saw teams actually knowing what it is that they were doing. I felt that you saw teams getting much better at 50 over cricket and the games getting better as a result and teams being able to claw their way back into games where they were struggling to do that in the first couple of weeks of the tournament. And the last four or five weeks had some really exceptional cricket. I mean, it would be hard to say that a tournament that saw Glenn Maxwell hit 200 and resurrect Australia from the depths of 91 for seven to win a game in an incredible partnership with Pat Cummins, of all people, who's 18 off 70 at the other end, playing a genius innings, both of them playing brilliant cricket, that that's bad for 50 over cricket or, or bad for cricket generally. It was Amazing to watch. He also hit the fastest 100 you've ever seen in the World Cup, albeit against the Netherlands, wasn't it? There's been some amazing finishes, Pakistan against South Africa. That that, that actually hinged on an umpire's call. And the umpire gave it not out. If he'd given it out, then they would have won Pakistan. You know, all those little things. You saw a timed out, for fuck's sake, a timed out. An act of shithousery so extraordinary between two teams, neither of whom could get through. It was the ultimate. And yet, for some reason, Shakib was moved to do that because he seemed to care so much about taking that wicket. I thought there was a hell of a lot that was great in this tournament. But unfortunately, a whole load of things conspired against it. How it started, 
the fact that New Zealand got off to a flyer and won four games out of four, um, Australia turning it around so quickly and going on a long run, it meant that the way the fixtures fell, it felt like there was sod or jeopardy. If they'd fell fallen slightly differently, New Zealand had lost the first four and then won their next five, we'd all be going burko about it, wouldn't we? What a great recovery it was. So it's neither neither good nor bad because the, the it wasn't universally good, but there were some incredible moments in it, incredible cricket. It's it's worth mentioning as well, England's shambolic performance is a large reason that there was no jeopardy. That wasn't in the script. England were meant to be quite good. Then there would have been more good teams competing for those four places. So basically, Absolutely. England ruined the tournament for everyone, including Mick Jagger. So that they've got that on their conscience. They basically, they ruined the entire World Cup by being as shit as they were England. The whole thing is their fault. I knew it wasn't a one-word answer, but I thought I'd put you on the spot and see what you both came up with. And you both came up with about 500 words, and I thought you would. It's, it's the only thing that I do find fascinating about because I, I I agree there needs to be change. I'm not as from a fan's point of view as hell bent on the 40 over thing, but it is also a bloody long day. Um, I want to talk about this stop clock thing that they're they're talking about introducing. Well, it's going to be introduced very very soon, and whether that will help at all. The only thing that does interest me, Finney, is with the 40 over thing is is that what's caused this? Because it's not you're the only one saying. It. There's a lot of people saying it. Is it purely? the rise of 2020 and franchise cricket and stuff like that because nobody has really been whinging about 50 over cricket until really it feels like th this World Cup's been a really big one where everyone's really ramped up the talk about 50 overs being too long. Is that purely because we've got so used to 20 overs that people not have the patience for 50 overs anymore? No, I've, I mean, yeah, if you ask my friends or whoever, I've been saying that I think it should be 40 over cricket for about, five or six years I just think it's a more interesting game I think it's a more compelling interesting game 40 over cricket played with one ball means that the bowlers have more opportunity to get the ball reverse swinging that spell that Stark bowled in the final getting the outside edge when it was reverse swinging a couple of times that's brilliant cricket to watch because you have to bat bloody well to score runs against it and I think that the 50 over game had just become into a had just become into a, a prolonged batter-friendly format that that didn't really give the bowlers any chance unless you know you're absolutely brilliant like someone like Jasprit Bumrah. So no, I I think forty over cricket isn't something that's just been plucked out of thin air because there was such a lack of good games through this World Cup with mixed individual bits of brilliance in there. I, I think, and I think that there's a stronger growing movement of thinking within the game that 40 over cricket is a better spectacle to watch and that's it. I, I would add to that that I think you could add, um, I love the one ball idea, but you could add a slight tweak to the bowling restrictions. So instead of having five bowlers having eight overs each, you say something like a fourth bowler has to have bowled at least five overs. And allow the best bowlers to be bowling like make it a, an actually really interesting game because i'm not sure that you need to have the fifth bowler it, it becomes a sort of becomes just an irritation actually oh we've now got to watch somebody bowling flat filth at someone's pads for a while because they can't turn the ball and he's just trying to burgle a couple of quick overs when a wicket's fallen and see if he can get some of his part-time balls out of the way and it just is that sort of takes all the energy out of the game you know I think having the best bowlers bowl, having one ball 
and 40 overs would be a, a really interesting spectacle. It would be like that bridge that you're trying to get people to have between 2020 cricket and test cricket. And I think it would work better than the current way. When you see the saw the scores that we had to endure sometimes. I remember sitting with Alex Hartley and South Africa got forget 426, I think. And she came off there and she said, you know, that's the most boring 426 I've ever seen. It was at Delhi. It's quite small ground. The bowling was powder puff on a flat deck. And it was a sort of, you know, shooting fest, really. And a good ball was one that was just fired in at someone's pad. And it's just quite dull. <laughs> watch, watch it. Now. Well, Finney said it for ages on this podcast, and I've always agreed with him that I, I do find, even, well, I think we we talk, we came on here and this, talked on this podcast when England broke the world record against Holland, and we all agreed it was really fucking boring. If you look at the most exciting spells of play in this World Cup, there was lots of brilliant batting. Yes, the Maxar 200 obviously immediately springs to mind. But I thought, to be honest, the start of Australia's chase in the final and Mitchell Stark's spell at the start of the final were by far the two most exciting parts yeah. of the final. And it was when the ball was on top. And I completely agree. Uh, absolutely. Just watching batsmen hitting the ball everywhere. I, but, uh, are, we, are we old... Are we old no, ball no, no, idiots, it, or do, no, you know, do no, the young that, fans no. want to see a six fest? I don't know. I genuinely don't. No, when, when you're there, honestly, the excitement. I was, I was doing India Sri Lanka in Mumbai, and it was a really one-sided game. So India got more than enough and bowled Sri Lanka out. Was it fifty-five? But the skill and the brilliance of that that opening spell between Bumrah, Siraj, and Shami was absolutely captivatingly mind-boggling, and the crowd went berserk for it because actually. Crowds go much madder when wickets fall than they do when sixes are hit. There's a, they sort of they do the cheering for the TV cameras for the sixes, but the wickets are the thing that actually stir their soul. And that every time I was at every game, it was those passages when India's seamers suddenly had a like a boom and go and, and watching the skill of them doing that. If you take that skill away, then what we're watching, really, we're just watching practice sessions of range hitting, which is uh, what's dull. I've I've always said that whenever I get tickets to go and watch a day at the test, I always hope England are bowling because I always say if somebody goes to a lot of football, the closest thing you get to that goal scoring moment is taking a wicket. wicket. It's the best part of any day of cricket is when your team takes a wicket. It's the most exciting time because you might, if you're lucky, you'll get 10 of them in one day maximum. If you're unlucky, you might do what I did when I went to Lords and watched South Africa get 320 for one and Smith and McKenzie both got tons and I was having a piss when we took the one wicket. So you might not see any wickets all day. But it is, I do completely agree. I do think um, ball on top always makes more interesting cricket. But then again, I don't know what a 14-year-old cricket lover in India likes. He might Yeah, but they've got to, they've got 2020. That's the point. You see, this yeah. is the madness of it. You don't have to create a longer version of 2020. 2020 exists to do that. And there's a absolute shitload of it. The IPL's massively long. There's a whole load of other leagues. That's what they're mostly watching. So if this other World Cup turns up and it's like the other one that has quite a bit of biffing, but it also has the possibility that bowlers might be on top, then it people get intrigued by that because it's like the game that they're watching most of the time, but slightly different. And that's what you've got to do if you're going to infuse people in different formats. Otherwise, there's no point in having different formats. And that's the thing with 40 over cricket is that the ball might be on top sometimes, but people will still score 400 in a 40 over game. or so They'll score 330, 340 
in a 40 over game. So it's not like we're saying our oh, bowlers have to be on top all the time. I just think it means that when conditions are conducive with one ball, I think that the bowlers will have more of a chance to provide a spectacle of their own that doesn't involve just seeing the ball disappearing over the rope for four or six. There will still be a game. I just think there'll be far more balance within the game if that were, if that decision were to be made. Yeah, it's a good point. If 10 overs you lose are probably 10 boring overs in a 50-over game. will probably just sort of disappear into more exciting 40-overs. Um, well, there's no sign of 50-overs uh, going away anytime immediately soon. However, it has been announced that a stop clock is going to be trialled in men's limited overs internationals. It's going to take place on England's Tour of the Caribbeans in December, the White Ball Tour. There's three ODIs and five 2020s. And Finney, it's a stop clock. Teams have got 60 seconds at the end of an over to get into position to be ready to play the next over. Um, now, I'm all for anything that speeds up the game. I think everyone is. This is probably a sign from the ICC that they recognise the game's getting a bit slow at the moment. My worry is that just means that you can basically all get into position for the next over and then probably bowl one delivery and then the captain and the bowler can have another five-minute meeting. So it's always going to be hard to stop that happening. But Yeah, overall, but overs don't idea. work like that. No, overs don't work like that, do they? Because once you've started you know, there's no point in bowling one ball without a plan and then having a plan for the next five. I don't think that's the case. I like the idea of of having a stop clock, a, a clock on the time in between overs because naturally, I think during the over, if you were to time the actual over, I think, again, that makes a bowler's life hard work because you need to be able to have a clear plan when you're running up to bowl. But certainly the dawdling in between overs sometimes and the people running drinks on and off and you know, obviously have to stay hydrated and have to stay safe and whatever. But I do, yeah, I, I quite like the idea of it. I think it will end up coming down from a minute because a minute is still a long time to jog 20 yards from one edge of the circle to the boundary for the next over. But yeah, they'll settle upon an amount of time uh, that that will be necessary. And I think that it could be a good thing for the game. A stop clock is something that we've always wanted to have in cricket for a very long time. And when you see it working in baseball, you see it working in tennis, you think, why can't it work in cricket? Well, the simple reason is that you do much the same thing every time with baseball and in tennis. You're having to get to a mark and deliver a ball, whereas a fast bowler has to start from a different mark and a slow bowler starts on another mark. Ravindra Deja will bowl his overs in two minutes, two and a half minutes, given the chance. Whereas even the most um, rapid, fast bowler getting back to his mark is going to take four minutes. And that is just it. So how do you make a shot clock work in cricket? Do you do it in clumps of time? Do you do it in classifications of bowler? It can't, unfortunately, I can't see a way in which you can make it work, except being way, way, way more strict on how you reach the end point the 49 overs the 50 overs and the competition we just had missed a really good opportunity they talked a big game about this but the first game that Sri Lanka played they took four and a quarter hours and whilst I agree with almost everything Finney just said I don't think you watched enough Sri Lanka to realize how long a side can dawdle during overs they actually seem to have a change of plan after almost every ball at various points they got docked two overs worth of having to have one player inside the circle the Caribbean Premier League basically makes you discard fielders if you haven't got to the the the, the right time at the end of the 19th over fielders disappear now th this is what we should be doing 
I'm afraid. We should be being way, way harsher on the end part of the game. So if you haven't reached that point, not at the 49th, though, Sri Lanka hadn't reached it to the 47th, in truth, 46th, at which point a fielder should be brought in every over. And then suddenly you find that you've got all eight fielders or all nine remaining fielders inside the circle if you're not bowling it properly. It should be properly policed. There should be a lot less leeway given for balls going into the crowd because they it evens itself out. It's your own fault. You bowled a, bowled a pie. It's been smashed. Tough shit. Um, get the ball back. Hurry up, you know. Um, it's that that we've got to be looking at. An individual stop clock, I don't think, can work in cricket because of the variety of bowlers. And I agree with Finney. A minute is, I think, too long. I mean, that should just that should be forty-five seconds. That you should be able to get on. Oh, hello, Elizabeth. No, oh. Elizabeth. Oh no, the other one. I haven't seen her for so long. This is just magnificent. I should explain for people. It's been a, it's been a few weeks oh. that Finney's cat has appeared on screen. It has been weeks since we last saw the cat, actually. Um, oh. Now, are, are we going to get the money shot? That's what we all came for, isn't it? She's teasing no, us. I don't, no, she's very side on at the, the moment. Room. She doesn't quite have the room to, uh, to do that here. That's a shame. That's a shame. Anyway, yes. I was playing devil's advocate. I absolutely I love this idea. I think it's excellent. I do still, the things I immediately thought was a minute still feels like a very generous amount of time. But what I do really like about it is that they are going to punish them on the field of play, which we've talked about this podcast before. So if they fail to meet the time limit on three occasions in the same innings, it will result in a five-run penalty. That still sounds quite weak to me, but again, they're trialling it. Um, But at least I'd much rather that than when they just fine captains afterwards. Captains don't give a shit about getting fined for slow overrate. They really don't. They earn plenty of money. They'll be fine. And if it's the difference between winning or losing the game, then I know a few I... tight captains. And it's not the captain, it's the whole team. <laughs> it's the whole team that gets fined. But I mean it's the way that it works. So do you think the, the findings are good deterrent, or would you rather they got? No, it's not on a, the it's not a deterrent. You just That's deal with it problem. at a later That's date. It pisses you off when you get 50% fine from your match fee because you slow through the overs or someone was dawdling. But um, yeah, I think an instant punishment is more important for the pace of the game. Completely agree. Completely agree. Now, Finney, you just leave chaos in your wake everywhere you go, don't you? Everywhere you go is just left in a state of complete disarray because it's all kicking off at Sussex. What did you do while you were down there? What have you caused? So Ali Orr has left Sussex. He's off to Hampshire and it's all kicked off. Ian Gould and Chris Adams have resigned off the back of it. Uh, the chairman of Sussex, John Philby, has hinted that Ali Orr and Farbrace didn't see eye to eye. And he's basically said the system there is that Farbrace is the godfather. He's judged during executioner. He has all the power. He makes all cricketing decisions. And apparently that's a big reason why Ian Gould and Chris Adams weren't happy to work under those circumstances anymore. Uh, Finney, it's just look look at the chaos you've left behind you ever since you left Sussex. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not something that I was akin to, I suppose. I didn't... Oh, it's surprising that Ali has decided to leave Sussex because he is a Sussex boy and Sussex born and bred and, and is a very, very good player. So, yeah, it's obviously a surprise that he's left Sussex. But I think we're in an age now where there's a lot more fluidity and movement within cricket. It's not like a young player leaving a county 25 years ago, which would have just been seen as abhorrent and and not on and, and a complete disgrace. I think we're... 
we're in different times now and people have to do what's what's best for their careers. And if he felt as though playing Division One cricket when for Hampshire in a team that's more than likely going to be challenging for the trophy at the end of next summer, if that's a better career move for him, then he has to make that decision. Of all the other stuff, the I, I actually haven't even watched the interview that John Philby did or I've seen quotes from it on social media, but I've not seen the actual interview that he's done. But uh, I'll make a point of listening to that in the next couple of days or so. And and yeah, Paul Farbrace is the head coach and the director of cricket. So yeah, it's not a surprise that he is in charge of all cricketing decisions and um, he has to make the decisions that he deems fit that are best for the team. So yeah, I, I'm not really across anything that's gone on because since I left the club a couple of months ago, I've been in India working um, and completely out of the loop. So yeah, it's it's a shame that Alistair Raw's left, but you know we get to actually have a definitive reason as to why because it's all been a bit, I suppose, speaking in riddles. Well, it has been suggested. I don't know whether it was by Farbrace. I saw a quote somewhere saying that he'd been offered a two-year contract on the same terms as the one he currently got. And Sussex isn't a particularly wealthy county and Hampshire has more money. And it's quite close to Sussex. So if you just took all the psychodramas out of it, and there may be psychodrama as well, but if you took all that out of it, it's not a massively unusual move for a very talented young player to make to go up a division and, I imagine, get paid more money. That's just pretty natural progression for a sports person, isn't it? So, I I mean, I dare say there's all sorts of other things going on at Sussex. There might or there might not be, but I think the the transfer of Ali Orta to Hampshire is not (laughs) that that weird, is it? Well, it makes a lot of sense, really. I completely agree. It's a complete storm in a teacup. And also, you can tell that somebody just... We just needed a bit of cricket drama now that the World Cup's over. Uh, And also... it's, it's been made a bigger deal because ex-players Matt Pryor, Chris Nash have been very vocal, slagging it off on Twitter, essentially. And he's not the first one to go. So recently we've had uh, Ben Brown, Luke Wells, George Garton, Stephen Finn, obviously a massive loss as well. So you well, I think, look, I think when you're... The thing that I love, like I, I really, really enjoy playing at Sussex and we weren't very successful on the field, quite obviously. But you can tell that it's when you're together and when you're playing well as a team, it's a, it's an amazing place to play cricket because the support is partisan. You've got, you feel like you're one big community there because, because of the nature of the small ground and the fact that everyone lives locally to the ground. You can see that why, when those guys, Pryor, Nash, Adams, when those guys played in a successful team at Hove, it would have been an amazing place to play and really intimidating for opposition to come to and and I and I know that there's there will be a degree of frustration from them that the club can't replicate what what they used to do and and the club has to endeavor to create that atmosphere around it again you know when we played at Middlesex you knew that that team of the 80s and the early 90s was just looming over us the whole time sort of when I started we were close to the bottom of the second division and you had all these great players of the 80s, Gatting, Embury, Edmonds, Tufnell, Fraser, looking at us thinking, these folk are an absolute rabble. But, you know, cricket goes in cycles and and Sussex will come good. But, but you know, it takes a lot of hard work to get it there. The way I see it, didn't Ali Orr get run out backing up three times last season? Cash in while you can. 
it's one of those things where basically you know what cricket cricket fans are like and cricket twitter is like people all get very very emotional about it i'm very much the same as you daniel norcross i saw that and i went it's quite a good move rally or that yeah fair play to the bloke right well i will let you go because uh finney you must be jet lagged slash i know you want to go to the pub are you going to the pub with anyone exciting Mick Jagger, keith richards ronnie wood not quite. I mean, I, I was desperate to ask for a few Keith Richards stories because I've read his book and that was wild. So, yeah, I, I was I was desperate to to find out a couple of those, but I couldn't with Sir Mick's partner on the other side of him, I don't think. Um, <laughs> it is the greatest today, book I've ever read, Keith's book, apart from the first great. hundred pages where he just talks about playing the guitar. But when he gets <laughs> into the heroin and the sex, it's great. Yeah. Uh, so today, um, not Mick Jagger. No, Sam Robson and Steve Eskenazi today. So old Middlesex teammates. No, no pressure, Sam Robson, but you need to be as interesting as Mick Jagger tonight. Mm. Finney, Finney's had Mick Jagger now. Everyone needs to live up to those expectations. And Daniel Norcross, you're about to get into a tuxedo, aren't you? I am. Well, I'm not, actually. I'm going to wear my green velvet jacket with uh, with the rest of the other stuff because I just don't I think tuxedo's a bit dull. Do you strike uh, me as a man that would, would rock a, what's it, a cum and bun, whatever they're called? Cum, cumberbund. Cum, yeah. Cum, cumberbund. Yeah, cum, yeah. Cumberbund. I mean, yeah, anything is that now as you get older and uh, gravity... It tends to take your stomach that bit lower. The cummerbund looks like the sort of pouting lower lip of a gigantic pike or similar because it's... <laughs> Do you know what I mean? No, no. no, <laughs> well, no. Imagine, you know I gave up pikes, trying to work you know... out what the fuck you meant years ago. <laughs> well, you know how a pike's face, its jaw juts out the bottom and then it's sort of like its, it's lower lip comes out in a kind of horrible pouty way. A vicious fish. And the cummerbund, when it rests as it does on your stomach, as you get older, the stomach... Is that you, you're relatively flat down there. I'm a, I'm a moobless man, but when you get down to the bottom, it sort of like collects in a fold, and the cummerbund sits on that and is then jutted forward by the protruding flab that has sort of accumulated over 54 years, creating this look like a a very very large, very disappointed pike. So no, I'll be wearing. So to sum up, you'll be wearing the green jacket. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be wearing my dark, very dark green uh, velvet jacket. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and I have been hosted by Mark Butcher to celebrate Surrey's uh, second consecutive championship uh, title, their third in five years. And um, very, very excited. Uh, well, this is very interesting people. news to me that Butcher's hosting it because I was offered that gig a few months ago. So that they went to me before Mark Butcher. Oh, I'll, I'll live off that for years. But yeah. Butcher was second choice behind Tarrant. God, that's a what a in, what a low point for Mark Butcher. That is unbelievable. Yeah, that is actually. <laughs> I, I, I might mention that to him. Oh, yeah, please him do, please do, yeah. and uh, yeah, yeah. Send him my send him my regards. Uh, right, Finney, good to have you back uh, in Blighty, uh, and lovely to see you both. Nice to have the gang back together, even if Finney's doesn't suggest that and uh i'll see you next week by the way i do think that you're receiving more more affection from your cat than i've actually received from my wife since i got back um well yeah the cats are cats are fickle though because you feed them and clean their shit up and they love you very much i suppose you could try do that, that with Catherine. my wife I'll do that with my wife yeah <laughs> well, give it give it five years you won't have much choice right see you both soon see you bye bye ethel
Sports Social Podcast Network.